In John chapter 4, Jesus has a meeting with a woman at a well. But what kind of person was this woman? We've been led to believe she was a social outcast, possibly a prostitute, someone with an immoral past who was shunned by her community. But from where do these conclusions come? There are two details from this story that have been taken largely out of context, and we've come to some modern-day conclusions about what they mean. In turn, we've painted a Picasso of a portrait that would have been unrecognizable to John's first-century audience. You may feel you have a deep-seated understanding of this Samaritan, but it's time to rethink what we thought we already knew about the woman at the well. Welcome to episode eight, A Well in a Foreign Land. Thanks for tuning in this week. We're going to dive into John chapter four in just a minute. But before we do, I'd like to get kind of a bigger picture of where we've been in our study of John, what the author is trying to do here in these first few chapters. If you remember back in episode four, we talked about the wedding theme in the book of John. Be good to review that information if it's been a while since you've listened. But I'll be reminding you of some of the major points along the way and how it interacts with John chapter 4, especially the woman at the well. I'd like to just notice the progression that John is making in the telling of his story at the beginning of his gospel. We start out with John the Baptist out in the wilderness. When I talk about the progression that he's making, it's not just the progression of the literature, the story that he's creating here. It's the progression geographically where the main characters are on a map. We often don't picture that in our heads when we're reading uh, from our modern-day perspective. So we begin with John the Baptist out in the wilderness. The Pharisees, if you remember, sent priests and Levites to question the Baptist ministry. These are all the religious leaders of the day. You've got the Pharisees. Sadducees aren't mentioned, but they're part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body up on the Temple Mount, you've got the priests and the Levites, and they're questioning John the Baptist's ministry. It's important to notice also that at the same time the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites are questioning John the Baptist's ministry, many are coming to John the Baptist and believing what he says and agreeing to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But that's out in the wilderness. It's in the wasteland. John's going to bring us into civilization and the progression of his main characters. So we go from the wilderness, and then we find Jesus at the temple in John chapter 2. And what he notices is a couple of things. It's completely corrupt. It's not functioning the way it's supposed to function. And in Jesus' search for a bride, the faithful bride is not found in the place that you would expect to find her. The bridegroom comes to the sanctuary, God's temple, but the bride is not there. It's almost like the bride left Jesus at the altar. (laughs) It's like a 1980s (laughs) rom-com. So by the way, that's why the temple cleansing is put at the beginning of John's gospel. It's at the end of the other gospels. It's in the last week of Jesus's ministry before his death, burial, resurrection. But some have thought that because we've got an early episode here in John's gospel, and it's a late episode in the other three that maybe we have to have two actual temple cleansing events. But that's not a necessary solution. John's not so much concerned about the order of events when he portrays them. The other Gospels have already been written. John is bringing something new to the table. John uses that story to promote and further develop his wedding narrative. So Jesus 
comes out of the wilderness, ready for his ministry, and he goes to the temple where you would expect to find his bride. And the bride's not there. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of the bride. All the people with the right titles are there, but there's no people of faith. But that doesn't mean that the bride doesn't exist. So then the author, John, lets us witness the process of Jesus finding his bride. It's a progression from south to north through the land on on a map, and it takes us to some unexpected places. The bride isn't at the altar. So where is she? Well, in chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus. He's in Jerusalem. It's in the southern part of the country. It's in Judea. And he's secretly infiltrating the corrupt religious system. He's a Pharisee, but he's not like the other Pharisees. He's a believer, and he's a believing representative from a largely unbelieving group of people. He catches us by surprise in that way. Then Jesus travels north to visit the Samaritan woman. That's what we're going to be talking about today. She's between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north on a map. And then at the end of chapter 4, Jesus continues traveling north on into the Galilee region, known in his day as Galilee of the Gentiles. And what we get to see at each of these stops, in each of these episodes in chapter 3 and 4, is we get to see Jesus seeking out and finding people that have entered into a covenant relationship with God through faith and are going to accept him as the Messiah. And as the author of this gospel has taken us on this journey to find the faithful, he actually uses this trip from south to north, and it's highlighted. It's highlighted at the beginning of the chapter, John 4, 3, says he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and then he had to pass through Samaria, so he takes a pit stop there. And then at the very end of the chapter, John 4, 54, the very last verse This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So in chapter 4, John highlights the travel from south to north, away from the temple, the search for his bride. So let's take a closer look at the Samaritan woman. It seems that Many pastors and Bible teachers have taken two statements out of this story and painted a pretty unfavorable picture of the Samaritan woman. Got just a couple examples here. D.A. Carson in 1991 in his commentary, The Gospel According to John. Speaking of the Samaritan woman, he says, Apparently the woman came to the well alone. Women were more likely to come in groups to fetch water, and either earlier or later in the day when he of the sun was not so fierce. And then he sticks this in. Possibly the woman's public shame contributed to her isolation. So there, Carson does what almost every preacher I've ever heard give a sermon on John chapter 4 does. He assumes that the descriptions that are given by John the author of this woman are supposed to be read a certain way. And the reason she comes to the well alone is because she is some sort of social misfit, some sort of outcast. And she's coming to the well at noon, but nobody comes to the well at noon. Why would you ever come to the well at noon? It's in the heat of the day. You're going to get that work done early in the morning or late at night. And most commentators and preachers and teachers are going to look at that description that John gives us of this woman coming at noon in the heat of the day by herself, and they're going to read into that statement something about her character. 
Another popular teacher in the last 30 or 40 years has been John MacArthur. And he's got a sermon online. You can Google it. It's in YouTube. Uh, It's called Messiah. It's, uh, I think, a three-part series. And this I'm taking from part one called Messiah, the Living Water. John MacArthur says this, much of this story is familiar to you. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this story or read it many, many times through your life. I'm not here to tell you things that you don't know or bring out some kind of hidden realities within the story. He says, it's a simple story of Jesus evangelizing an outcast woman, of her coming to salvation, and then being used by God to bring many in her village to salvation. And if I could just break in, just in that first paragraph that I just read, he brings so many assumptions to the table about this woman and about her circumstances and about that there's no more hidden realities or anything that we could dive into any deeper. She's an outcast, and Jesus is evangelizing. Back to MacArthur. He says, Here we have as clear a model of our Lord evangelizing a sinner as anywhere in the pages of the Gospels. This is a woman who is a Samaritan. She's a religious outcast. She's an immoral woman. She's been married many times and currently is living in an adulterous relationship. She's an ignorant woman who doesn't know anything about true religion. She is ignorant and uneducated. She is religiously indifferent. She is not seeking Jesus. She is an unclean woman. MacArthur concludes, this passage teaches us how we are to approach people in the world who are indifferent to the gospel. He says Nicodemus was looking for Jesus, and here is a woman that wasn't looking for him at all. And I'm just surprised. I pulled these two examples just at at random, but they are representative of most everyone's teaching on this woman. But as I look at that second paragraph I just read of John MacArthur's assumptions, she's a religious outcast. Well, from what perspective does he mean? From a Jewish perspective? But is she a religious outcast in her own neighborhood? She's an immoral woman. She's been married many times and is currently living in an adulterous relationship. So, yes, she is currently living with somebody, but the text doesn't tell us why the previous five marriages have broken up. We can assume, maybe, that some of those were her fault, but the text doesn't give us that, so that's an assumption. She's an ignorant woman who doesn't know anything about true religion. She doesn't know anything about true religion. I'm sorry, but the conversation that this woman has with Jesus shows that she certainly does know something about true religion. In fact, she may be confused about a lot of things, but she is dead center right on, on maybe the most important aspect of what she needs to believe, and that is that a Messiah is coming, and that when he comes, he's going to explain all of this. He's going to straighten things out. So I would just encourage you, no matter what sermons you've heard or the way you've approached this story in the past, let's let's give the woman at the well a clean slate coming in. Let's look at a couple statements that we may have assumed meant one thing and maybe rebrand them. Give them a new context, maybe a context that a first century reader would have just immediately understood that we have not even considered. It's possible that you've heard this story so many times that you've already decided what it says. 
And there may be some hidden realities that are not evident because of the blinders that our particular culture has given us. But these conclusions largely come from two clues that the text gives. Number one, we've already covered it, the woman came to the well at noon, and she was alone. We bring so many assumptions to that statement. Number two, the woman has been married five times and was currently living with a man that was not her husband. We've taken those two facts, inserted them into our modern understanding of the scene, and presto, the Samaritan woman must be shamed, she must be a social outcast, she might even be a prostitute. We've interacted with some of Bill Mounce's material in previous episodes. He has a blog post called, Was the Samaritan Woman a Prostitute? And it's about John 4. And he's looking at it from a Greek language standpoint. Is there any indication in the text, in the Greek of the text, that might lead us to the conclusion that this woman was immoral in that way? This from Bill Mounts. Some people think she was a prostitute. But is there any evidence that this is so? There's an idea floating around out there that the Samaritan woman in John 4 was a prostitute. And I was recently asked, says Mounts, if there is any evidence in the Greek that this is so. Actually, it's quite the reverse, he says. She is never called a prostitute. And in fact, she was apparently quite open to marriage. Even though she was not married to the man she was currently living with, she had been married five times. We get that from verse 18. Jesus's language is not judgmental either. He simply asked, will you give me a drink? Verse 7. Her surprise was not that he was talking to a prostitute, but simply to a Samaritan woman. We know that because she said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She addresses him politely as sir, and she lived in the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. Not that a prostitute couldn't have also had the same expectation. So Mount says, given the evidence, I really doubt she was a prostitute, but perhaps had other moral issues. But given the nature of that culture and the difficulty of living as a single woman, I wouldn't pass judgment on her. We don't know why the first five marriages ended. And I just like that perspective that Mounts gives. Just from a text standpoint, I like when we go back to the text and we ask ourselves the question, what is it that the text is actually saying? The text actually doesn't give us very many clues about the moral character of this woman. So what are some other conclusions that we should consider? What if John is using certain facts about this story to highlight and further promote links to the Old Testament? What if it's really all about Jesus's search for a bride? Jesus comes to Jacob's well at noon. We know that from the story. He's in search of his bride. We know that from the greater context at the beginning of the book of John. Then a woman shows up and Jesus offers her water. Does that sound familiar at all? Well, it should. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's almost an exact repeat of the story of Jacob back in Genesis 29, verses 1 through 20. It's when Jacob meets Rachel, who would be his wife. We're going to interact with this from a literary standpoint. And what I'm going to be asking you to do is to consider the story of Jacob and how it's presented in the Old Testament. And then what has John done in the New Testament with this theme, the search for a bride with Jesus in the New Testament? And I'm going to suggest to you that the original audience would have come to very different conclusions than we've come to about this woman at the well and how she plays into the ministry of Jesus. 
Genesis 29, verse 1, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And in verse 2, he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. And from that well, they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. This is a well-known story. This is Jacob. This is the guy that gets renamed Israel. He's the founder of the nation of Israel. He's the patriarch. They would know that Jacob ends up at a well in a foreign land and that it's at high day, it's at noon, and this is not the time to be at a well. Nobody comes to the well at this time of day. You should be pasturing right now. Everybody knows that. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Then Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. There's people at a well and they need water. And Jacob shows up at this well in a foreign land and it's family that shows up. Rachel is family and she's just not family. She's beautiful family. We find out later he really likes the way she looks. He wants to marry her. She's a shepherdess, too. We learn that here. What's a shepherdess? Well, she has a flock of sheep that she looks after. And Jacob, in this story, provides water to her and her flock. So the reason John, the author of the gospel, includes the time of day, noon, it isn't for us to conclude that this woman coming is some sort of a social outcast If that's the case, we need to go back to Genesis 29 and have the same conclusion because here's Rachel coming to the well at noon. John is painting a picture. He's using the Jacob narrative and he's inserting Jesus into that narrative. And here the woman at the well is playing the role of Rachel who comes to the well in a foreign land at high noon. And we learn in the Genesis story that a large part of the connection that Jacob has with Rachel is because they are related. They are family. That's 29 verse 10. Rachel was the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. That's the long way of saying that they were cousins. And then in Genesis 29, 11, when they kiss, well, that makes them kissing cousins. That's that's not the main point, but I thought I had to bring it out. It's possible that a woman coming to a well at high noon has nothing to do with her social standing or the fact that she's an outcast or a misfit in her culture. It might have everything to do with a well-known connection to an Old Testament character, the founder of the nation. His name was Jacob. Oh yeah, and by the way, in John chapter 4, it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He came to a city near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. 
It is not by chance that when John the author put this whole narrative together, that he included a woman at a foreign well, it's Jacob's well, it's at high noon. But there's a question that the woman asks that is the most important question of this entire story. In verse 10, Jesus answers her and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Here's the question that is the key crux to the whole episode. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? That's the question on the table. And if we can read this episode, knowing that the answer to that question is yes, Jesus is greater than their father Jacob, the one who supplied that well, the one whose story the gospel is mimicking and placing Jesus into, he's greater. And how is he greater? Well, in the Old Testament story, Jacob came to a well at noon and met his future bride. He was drawn to her because of the close family connection, but he was also drawn to her by her outward appearance. He also gave her water, but it wasn't the same quality of water that Jesus is offering. So what about the five husbands? John uses this to contrast the Samaritan woman with the virginal beauty of Rachel. See, Jacob was so caught up with the outward beauty That's why he loved Rachel, and that's why he's not excited about Leah, her older sister. It's the outward beauty. And remember the question that the Samaritan woman asks? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Jacob offered water to a foreign shepherdess and her flock based on her close family relation and her outward beauty. But Jesus offers water of a different type to the Samaritan shepherdess and her flock, despite a severely fractured family connection and a complete lack of virginal status and beauty. Jesus is greater because his love is greater. It looks past the superficial, and he is able to identify his bride without regard to social norms. Remember, Jesus has already been to the temple, the place where the bride should be, and she wasn't there. And he's going out in search, and he's finding the most unlikely people, the people that we would normally pass by because we often look at outward appearance like Jacob in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus sees through to the soul, and he's able to see that these people are people of faith. They may not fit into our nice, neat boxes, but they are people of faith, and the Samaritan woman has more faith than most of the people in the entire gospel. The entry for John in the Expositor's Bible Commentary by Tenney is going to give us a little bit more background, too, on the significance of the family ties that Jesus has with this woman of Samaria. Tenney says, The shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee lay on the high road straight through the Samaritan territory between the south and the north. Uh, He goes on to say, Many Jews would not travel by that road, for they regarded any contact with Samaritans as defiling. Immediately after the fall, now he's going to give some historical context here. 
Immediately after the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC, the Assyrians had deported the Israelites from their land and had resettled it with captives from other countries. Let me just break in here because when I teach my Old Testament survey class, this is one of the major things that I focus on because it, it plays in not just with the Old Testament story, but New Testament story as well. In 722, when the northern 10 tribes of Israel were deported, the Assyrians were practicing something called population switching. They would take the leaders of the place that they were conquering and export them out to another city far away that they had conquered. So those leaders then would not know the language, they wouldn't have any social structure, and they became ineffective as leaders. They left some of the common people in place, though, and then they brought leaders from other conquered cities into that place. And that's exactly what happened in this area of Samaria when the northern kingdom in the Old Testament was conquered by Assyria. So we get some pagan influences brought in to this central region at that time, and people began to intermarry, and the religion that was there became sort of a half-breed religion For instance, they held to the first five books, the Pentateuch, but they didn't share the rest of the story. And so here, Jacob's well that this woman is sitting at, Jacob's in the first five books. Jacob's not just part of the Jewish story. It's part of her story, too. Back to the commentary. Assyrians had deported the Israelites from their land, and they had resettled it with captives from other countries. And these had brought with them their own gods, whose worship they had combined with remnants of the worship of Jehovah and Baal in a mongrel type of religion. When the descendants of the southern captivity returned from Babylon in 539 to renew their worship under the law, they found a complete rift between themselves and the inhabitants of Samaria— both religiously and politically. And in the time of Nehemiah, the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 4, what you're going to find is a story where the inhabitants of the southern kingdom move back in and they start rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple itself. And the Samaritans, their neighbors directly to the north, that are kind of this half-breed of Jewish religion and share the first five books of the Old Testament in their history, they came down and they wanted to help rebuild. But the people returning to rebuild didn't want them involved from a religious purity standpoint. They shunned them. They said, no, you can't help us. And so this is the background in the Old Testament of this rift that begins way back there in 539 goes through the whole intertestamental period and has more in the time of the Maccabees that's contributing to this. And then when Jesus shows up, there's a rift in the family. It's not a nice, neat, kissing cousins type scenario, but their family, their religious family. And so when Jesus begins his conversation with the woman at the well, who's part of the family, but it's the part of the family you don't invite over for the holidays, he begins to have a conversation with her. And he accepts her. And it's not based on the Samaritan's history, and it's not based on her history. It's based on who she is at that moment. And she's clearly a woman of faith that says, you know what? All I know is that a Messiah is coming, which she gets out of the first five books of the Old Testament and believes. And then there's a statement that Jesus makes. And just like with Nicodemus, 
the conversation that Jesus has with this woman is at times with her, with singular use, and at times it's with her largely unbelieving group that she's a part of, the Samaritans, because the use that you would read if you went back and read verses 17 and 18 in John chapter 4, those are all singular use. He's talking to her directly, in other words. But then in verse 20, they switch to plural use. Our fathers worship in this mountain, she says, and you say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. That you is plural. And the NASB adds, actually, and you people to show that it's plural. And in the next verse, Jesus' response is back in a plural fashion, speaking not just to her individually, but speaking of her people group. Let's read what he says. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you people worship the Father? Will you Samaritans worship the Father? And then in verse 22, you got plural use as well. You people worship what you people do not know. But he's talking about the larger group of Samaritans that she's representing. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers. Here's a title that Jesus is giving outside of social ramifications and boxes true worshipers. It's not Samaritan or Jew anymore. I've been to the temple. The Jews there didn't know me. And here I am in a foreign land at a well at high noon, and I recognize family. And you are a true worshiper. An hour is coming, and right now is for her, Jesus is saying, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, what people? True worshipers For those people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. It's not about what land you live in. It's not about what mountain you go to. And the woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. That's the Hebrew and the Greek way of saying the anointed one. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And that gets a base level understanding of what Jesus said to her. And it's true. I'm that guy. That's basically what he's saying. But it's the way he says it in the Greek that would have connected with her that we don't get to see. So the English says, I who speak to you am he, which is, it's just really unfortunate. It's all about the order of the words. Uh, The Greek actually reads this way, said to her, Jesus, I am who speaks to you. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and that's exactly why they didn't translate it that way, because that makes no sense. <laughs> but in the Greek, the order doesn't really matter as much. It's there for emphasis. And you can put any combination of Greek words together in large number of different orders and come out with basically the same meaning with different nuances. And here's the crux. The word I and the word M are right next to each other. It's a go, a me in the Greek. And if you go back to the Old Testament When Moses is at the burning bush and he's asking for God's name in the Septuagint, the answer that comes back is a go, a me. And Jesus, in the response to this woman who knows that there's a Messiah coming and knows the first five books of the Old Testament, he claims to be the I am. Unfortunately, our English translation takes those two words and gets them almost as far apart from each other as possible. I who speak to you am. And then we add a he because it makes no sense (laughs) otherwise. But literally what he says is, 
the guy who's talking to you is the I am. And that was enough for the Samaritan woman. She leaves her pot at the well and she goes back to a town that, again, if, if we were of the majority view, she's returning to a town now at high noon when nobody is out and she has no social status. She has no friends. She's an outcast. But evidently, there are people that she goes and talks to and they immediately believe her and they believe in the Messiah based just on her testimony. And they believe her so much that they're willing to follow her out in the middle of the day to a well. This woman is not a social outcast. This woman is well-connected. And there's a group of Samaritan people that are looking and waiting for the Messiah. And when she found it, much like the calling of the first disciples back in John chapter 1, when they met Jesus, they went and got their family and they brought them to Jesus. That's exactly what's happening here with the woman at the well. She goes back into town, and at midday, she convinces and causes others to believe, and she brings them out. It's almost as if she's a shepherdess, and she has her own flock, and she brings her flock out to the well in the middle of the day to receive water that's better and greater than their father Jacob could have ever offered, because this is the Messiah. It's Jesus And he's going to set all things right. John chapter 4 ends by Jesus continuing his travels in a northward fashion into Cana of Galilee. That's where he had made the water from wine, verse 46 says. And he meets a royal official whose son is sick at Capernaum. And these are two different places. So the son is sick in one location, but this man has come and sought out Jesus and he's imploring him. And Jesus answers to this gentleman in the plural you. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you people simply will not believe. By that one statement alone, Jesus is including this man as a member of a largely unbelieving group of people there in the north in the Galilee region. And so we've had Nicodemus, a believing member of a largely unbelieving group of Pharisees, religious leaders of his day down in Judea in Jerusalem. And we've had the woman at the well, a believing member of a largely unbelieving group of Samaritans in the middle of the country. And we move northward to the nobleman who is a believing member of a largely unbelieving group in the Galilee region. And John decides to use these three stories with believing representatives of the larger whole to tell the story of Jesus' search and the finding of his bride. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in and giving it a listen. I want to just remind you that at RethinkingScripture.com, we've got a full Bible study on the book of John It's got chapter-by-chapter lessons. I've got teaching videos where I go into more detail of the stuff I'm talking about here on the podcast, and it's all available there for free. I invite you to make your way and use it heartily. In the next episode, we dive into John chapter 5. It's a really long chapter with a lot of content, but there's some specific hot topics that we're going to talk about that are worthy of rethinking. It includes the Sabbath, and it's going to challenge your socks off. 
Thanks again for listening to the Rethinking Scripture podcast.